there are mailboxes in some places for letters to Santa. And I wish there was a place for letters to dead loved ones. For the first two days of kindergarten, my dad sat quietly in the back of the classroom, reading the Cleveland Plain Dealer, helping my teacher serve snacks, and doing his famous Elmo impressions for my class. In that instant, I knew what I didn't want. I didn't want the life my father had chosen. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. The voices you just heard are essayists for the Writer's Talk 2011 Father's Day special, and you'll hear more from them later in the show. Today's special time and day are to celebrate the many forms of fatherhood. We'll begin with my talk with some of the people behind the recent essay collection, This I Believe on Fatherhood. Dan Gediman is one of the editors of the new book, This I Believe on Fatherhood, a collection of some of the essays from the NPR radio program of the same name, This I Believe. Started by Edward R. Murrow, this show encourages audience members to submit essays about firmly held beliefs. And joining me today is one of the authors in this new collection, the Columbus-based author Susan Kramer. So welcome, Dan and Susan. Thank you so much, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Well, Dan, uh, since you're the editor of it, let me start off asking you some questions. What was your selection process? Well, Doug, as you mentioned in your intro, this, I believe, has been going on for quite a while. It reaches back to the 1950s with Edward R. Murrow's original version of this, I believe. Our contemporary version started in 2005 on NPR, and so every week we put out the call for people to send us essays, and we get hundreds of essays each week. So we had hit uh, and actually surpassed the 100,000 essay mark. So we had literally tens of thousands of essays to go through to find the 60 essays for this book. Um, When they come in, we tag them with whatever theme the writer is writing about, and we sort of put them in piles. And when the time came to put this book together, we looked at the piles of essays that were tagged with parenting. And out of those, we ended up, I think we narrowed it down to about 300 essays that we read intensely and considered for the book and then slowly narrowed it down to these 60, largely trying to not just find, you know, well-written essays and and, uh, interesting essays, but also essays that looked at fatherhood from all different angles, from fathers writing about being a father and from people like Susan, who have written about either a father or a stepfather, an adoptive father. And then within that, also looking at other variations on a theme. For instance, there's a wonderful essay in the book from a woman who's a single mom who's had to find father figures for her three children who didn't otherwise have a father in the picture. Susan, tell me about your experience with this project. Were you specifically starting at the beginning to write about fatherhood, or that's the essay that came out? I wrote my essay right after my stepfather lost his battle with cancer. So it was an exercise for me to get through a a really hard time. It was something that I wrote for myself. Um, So I wrote it, and then it sat on my hard drive for any number of years. And then I was looking for somewhere to... um, get my work out in the world, and I heard on the radio the call for essays for this, I believe, so I sent it off, okay. and uh, years passed. <laughs> so. Is there uh, an essay that resonated most strongly for you in this book, Dan? I'm curious about your reaction to these essays. Oh, gosh, well, that's hard to say. That's you know sort of akin to saying, which is your favorite child? Um, I mean, <clears throat> they have all resonated uh, in various ways. Uh, to me. Now, at, speaking as a father, 
Um, there are certain essays that just by virtue of the experiences I've had with kids, I, I have nine-year-old twins, um, are, are similar. For instance, there's an there's a essay that begins the book from a guy named Corey Harbaugh who writes about this sort of archetypal experience, not just for fathers, but for mothers, for parents of, uh, of all kinds. And that is, what do you do when your child reaches the age where they start to question the existence of the tooth fairy, the Easter bunny, Santa Claus? And, and in, in his case, he's writing about Santa Claus. And he tells this wonderful story of a, his son coming to him and saying, uh, Dad, if I were to ask you to tell me the truth about Santa Claus, would you do it? And he thinks a long time, and he says, yes, if you were to ask me, I would tell you the truth. And then there's a long pause, and his son says, okay, then I won't ask you. And that is very uh, similar to my own experience with, with at least one of my kids who, who knew intuitively what was up, but really did, was not ready to explode that myth. And, uh, and so it's really, you know, there are so many stories like that in this book that tell, you know, vignettes that are so real uh, from the experience of, in particular, having children and being a father. Uh, but I also want to say that essays like Susan's that are, you know, writing about fathers or in her case, stepfathers, um, and oftentimes are looking back retrospectively on uh, a parent who has, has, has died or perhaps is at the very end of their lives. Maybe we have several very poignant essays from people who are nursing their, their fathers through the end of life to sort of reevaluate who these people were and how valuable they were and the lessons learned. Um, you know, I think it's a, a, a very common experience that it takes often, sadly, till the end of life to really appreciate a parent uh, or a step-parent. And um, so, you know, it, it, I have a father, he's 85 years old, I'm, I'm actually going to see him in a couple of days, and, you know, so I'm living both sides of that continuum, and it, it's been a very interesting experience to read all these essays for that reason. I hope you're giving your father a copy of this book for Father's Day. As a matter of fact, it is in an envelope with a Father's Day card as we speak. Excellent choice. Now, you identified as a father. I'm curious if you're also a writer. Have you, Dan, attempted to write a piece like this. I know you couldn't submit it to yourself, but have you yeah. followed your own essays? I, I did. I gave it a shot. Um, I go out of my way not to talk about it because I feel like my role in this is, is merely a facilitator. Um, but yes, I figured it would be uh, only fair to have put myself through the anguish of trying to, A, narrow it down to one thing to write about, which is very difficult, um, and secondly, to, to actually try to draft one. And um, as Susan well knows, uh, it can be a really difficult project. Um, the, 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 the late writer John Updike, um, I have a postcard from him on my desk at the moment, as a matter of fact, and I'm reminded that when he was given this writing assignment when we first started our uh, series on NPR, he said it was the hardest writing assignment he'd ever been given, precisely because it's, on the one hand, open-ended as to subject matter, but on the other hand, uh, there's a, a very uh, short amount of uh, space to work with. It's no more than 500 words. And in point of fact, he, f he failed. He, he, he couldn't do it. He ended up writing about three different things instead of one thing, which is generally speaking what we ask people to do. So it's a tough assignment. Uh, and um, there's actually an essay from a novelist who spent 18 months working on an essay about 
similar to Susan about his dying father. And he said he'd never spent more than, you know, six months, 12 months working on a novel. And here he spent 18 months of multiple drafts trying to get his essay right. That's a great insight into the writing process. Susan, what was your writing process for this book? How did you uh, start, start it? How long did it take you? I write very, very slowly. I write one word at a time, and then I revise, and then I write another word. So it it took me probably about a year of working on this essay, and I still had some revisions to make for it, for the book. So mm-hmm. I, I just am very, very slow. I have a very small output. Several people who have written these essays have said to us that it, especially people who were had some experience writing, and we have you know many people who write these essays who have no experience writing. This is you know they're complete. This is something very unusual for them to do. But for those who have written before, they tell us that this is almost closer to writing poetry than prose, because you have to be so careful with selecting the words and sort of pruning and taking things away. It's almost like sculpting in that sense. You're you're you're, you're doing more removing than anything else. Um, we had an interesting experience with David Halberstam, the great journalist and, and writer. He submitted a 12,000-word essay to us. <laughs> and we said, well, this is a great first draft, but we've got to get it down to 500. And uh, he said, uh, no, no, that's it. That's 12,000 words. That's, that's, that's what I do. Um, so, uh, or 1,200, rather. So, it, you know, it's, it's really hard for people to get it down and make it short and and still get the essence of the story they want to tell in there. So it's, uh, you know, if short story writing is difficult, and I believe it is, then this is like short, short, short story writing. I'm curious about how you handle when you get things in that are that are too long, especially when you've got, say, a big name author like that. What kind of editing do you do? What kind can, what, how much can you do? Well, I should say that, that we are no longer sort of in the business of... Um, Soliciting essays for major, uh, you know, celebrity types. We, <laughs> we did that in our first few years on NPR, and we found that it was, um, although rewarding in many respects, kind of a draining process. It took, in some cases, years. It took us, for instance, five years to get Muhammad Ali to submit an essay, and and he ended up with a terrific essay that's just completely sort of <laughs> the embodiment of, of Muhammad Ali. It just sort of leaps off the page. But it was just, it's a very difficult thing to ask people in the public eye to expose themselves and be real honest. And a lot of folks don't want to do that, or, or perhaps I should say their people don't want them to do it, their publicists, their managers, etc., their handlers. But to answer your question in a larger way, because it's not just you know, famous writers that have had a hard time with getting it down to 500 words. You know, we often, for these books that we've done, um, such as this one, you know, people submit something that's 700 or 800 words, and it's far easier to cut something down than to build it up. Because we have some people who send very, very short essays, and that's tough because you either accept them as they are or you have to ask people in some cases two or three years later to, to add stuff. And that's very difficult because, um, for instance, there's an essay in, um, and forgive me, we've done several books in quick succession, so I can't remember which one this was for, but for one of our books, um, where the writer had written this essay about his wife and his love for his wife. And in the interim, they fell out of love and divorced. And we were asking him to revise his essay as though it were current, which obviously was very difficult to do. And uh, 
So, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, you know, doubled in the, in the sense that with, such as uh, Susan's experience, where we're often getting in touch with people several years after they've written their essay and submitted it to us, and we have um, plucked it out of the, this big group of essays because it was perfect for one of the books that we're doing. The essay in which the uh, gentleman had to rewrite about his now ex-wife, he was ultimately successful in that then. He was, and he was such a good sport about it. He understood what we were doing, and the, and he was enough of a writer to understand that he didn't want to go in and revise history. <clears throat> you know, that, wasn't, that wouldn't have been right, even if we had been okay with that, which we wouldn't have been. So what he basically did was he let us make some suggestions for how things could be edited without changing the original meaning of what he had to say at the time. And, uh, but it's been very interesting. We've had a lot of those experiences where people have you know, wanted to change how they have referred to certain people in their lives because those relationships may have changed. Um, there's a great essay in our previous book, uh, This I Believe on Love, written by a woman who has been in a long-term relationship with her gay partner, and at the time, there was no such thing as, as gay marriage where she lived, and there is now. And so she, her essay is basically writing about how she'd really love to marry her her, her partner if she could because she, they've spent their lives together, they intend to die together. And then the postscript, which we put in the, not in the essay itself, but in the, the little biographical blurb, is that they, they married Susan, uh, you also run a middle school creative writing club. Did you read your essay that was accepted here uh, at that? Did you share that with the students, or was this just you only shared it with the external group before you did that? Well, the um, the club that I'm involved in is my school's section of Power of the Pen, which is an Ohio-only interscholastic writing league. It is a fabulous, fabulous organization only for middle schoolers. And we meet from September through May. So I told them it was coming once I knew. But by the time the book came out, the club was over for the year. But you can bet I'll read it to next year's students. Okay. Are you planning on writing another essay? Have you thought about other, this, I believe, essays that you'd like to write? You know, I have thought about it. But I think that the it needs to be open to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they would feel about somebody... Um, <laughs> appearing in two of their books. So I have written numerous essays, and I'm hoping now that uh, I have one in a book that I'll be able to do something with the other ones. Because Susan is involved with middle school, I'll just mention for the benefit of any educators listening that we have curricula available on our website at thisibelieve.org for middle school, high school, undergraduate and adult learning programs. So if anybody's interested in exploring that, we have that on our website, along with these 100,000 essays that have been submitted to us. So if you just want to read essays from the Columbus area, or for instance, we have essays from OSU students. So you can just look at, if you put in Columbus and under 18, you'll come up with a bunch of OSU freshmen who have written this, I believe, essays. Dan, I'd like you to reflect for just a minute. When you get the essays in, they're all print. And of course, it's your own voice hearing it. Versus at the end where they're spoken uh, by the people that have written them. How does that change the piece for you uh, in general? It's a great question. You know, I've been in uh, radio my whole, uh, really, my whole adult life since college. And the writing for the ear is a very unique proposition. And uh, it's very different than writing for the eye. Because whenever we are going to turn any of these pieces into radio, 
uh, pieces, they have to be adapted so that they roll off the tongue of the reader. And I have a, a radio colleague that um, writes radio dramas, and she does writing workshops all over the world, specifically on how to write for the ear. And she contends that this is something that would improve every single writer's writing, whether you write fiction, nonfiction, anything, that if you, re- if you can read it aloud, there's plenty of room to breathe. You, you're not, there aren't too many words in the sentence, so that avoids run-on sentences. You make sure your punctuation is in the right place, so there's pauses where you can breathe. These are things that improve any writing, because if you think about it, what most readers are doing is they're reading it to themselves. And in many cases, they're almost reading it aloud in their brain. So if it's awkward and they're stumbling and they can't breathe, well, that usually means that, th- that there's something wrong with the, with the prose. That's usually the only adaptation that we do is we might take a run-on sentence and cut it into two or three smaller sentences. Or we might uh, suggest some punctuation changes, again, to allow breaths. The other thing is that there are things you can get away with verbally that might not quite be according to Hoyle in prose. For instance, sentence fragments can work, depending upon how you put your emphasis. A lot of people do things with M dashes and you know various kinds of parenthetical thoughts that could get a little cumbersome on the page, but when they're spoken aloud, if you do it the right way, you can sort of have several parenthetical thoughts nested within one another and still be understandable. So it's a different medium, one that I think any writer could be improved by exploring. I found that also to be the case with my students. We will write for 40 minutes, and then I have them pass their papers around so that their colleagues can read them. And that really tells them what's working and what isn't working. That's enormously helpful hearing your words, even in somebody else's voice. All right. Well, Susan, let's end with one final question. What's your advice for people who are thinking about writing a This I Believe essay? What would you tell them at the start? I would tell them to quit thinking about it and start doing it. And don't worry about the quality of your writing. If you have some deeply held beliefs, just sit down and write them and get them on paper because that's the hard part. Once you have them, you can manipulate them any way they need to be, but go ahead and write it. Do you have a uh, follow-up on that, Dan? Uh, No, I couldn't agree more with Susan. We can always polish up haphazard writing or, you know, something that's dashed off quickly as long as the story itself is compelling and there is passion in the writing. I think that's the thing that leaps out at us when we read through scores for hundreds of these is the passion of the person and their perspective and their storytelling. At the end of the day, it's all about storytelling. So if you have a story to tell, that is compelling to you, that you are passionate about, then you can relate that to the reader or the, or the listener. Dan Gedman, uh, the editor, one of the editors of This I Believe on Fatherhood, thank you very much for talking to us today on Writer's Talk. And Susan Kramer, one of the authors included in the book, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Doug. Now that you've heard the setup of the book and the radio show, Let's hear some Central Ohioans and Ohio Staters with their essays on fatherhood. Molly Farrell. I believe my dad can read the Father's Day cards I write for him. Last year, the second Father's Day without him, I caught myself holding my breath, my hands suddenly cold, when I passed a display of greeting cards. So I walked up and faced them. All the cards I couldn't buy for him, all the choices I didn't have to make 
about which one fit the kind of dad he was to me. I looked around for one that was good enough, paid for it, brought it home, and wrote out the card. You're dead, I started it, because he knows that well enough. I don't have to keep it from him now. I bought this card for you anyway, I wrote, because I want you to know how much I miss you. I want you to know how grateful I am you're my dad. On the card, I wrote some more about what he'd missed since he died. It was wet when I was done, and I sealed it. Then came the weird part. What to do with it? I knew there are mailboxes in some places for letters to Santa, and I wish there was a place for letters to dead loved ones. Some kind of communal fiction I'd be more than happy to play along with. I still have the sealed card somewhere. I'll write another one this year, maybe start a collection. I'll probably keep writing them until my chest no longer tightens at the mention of Father's Day. I try to confront the painful things in life, usually. I like to think my dad taught me that. He was also the one who gave me the idea, now that I think of it, that he might linger in my life after he died and be able to do things like read my cards. Once towards the end, when he couldn't talk much, I picked up a random book and started reading it out loud just to break the silence. I read for a few pages, Dad's Eyes Vacant, and then I read this line from a memoir called Little Heathens. There was a saying in our family that no one ever died. People just dried up, were hung on a hook, and conducted their affairs from there. And Dad in his bed looked up and said, Stop. Read that again. He had to say it twice while I stared at him. Then I repeated it. No one ever died. People just dried up, were hung on a hook, and conducted their affairs from there. He was calm and alert. I like that, he said, going back inside himself. Just hang me on a hook. About a week later, after he'd gone inside his own mind completely, he died. Three years on, I guess I'm still looking for a place to hang him. But maybe when I find the right hook, I'll lay these unopened cards nearby. Shante Piazza. I was a tough sell on the concept of kindergarten. I clearly remember my first marketing pitch my parents delivered at the kitchen table one afternoon. My mother said, it's going to be so much fun for you. Just think, when the summer is over, you're going to be a big girl at a big girl school just like your sister. Only thing is, I didn't want to go to school. And why did I have to make friends? For the past two years, I had a brown pound puppy permanently tucked under my arm. He was my perfect friend. We ate banana slices on the sofa, watched countless hours of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and whenever I spilled something, he even insisted that I use his cloth body to clean up the mess. What a trooper. Can't imagine any other friend being that loyal, especially in this kindergarten place. Before I knew it, summer was over, and the first day of kindergarten arrived. That morning, I stood in the bathroom doorway wearing my bit girl dress that we picked out, a red polka dot number that puffed out at the bottom, and a very noticeable frown. My mother, always glamorous, looked up and said, you can do this. I know you can. And I know you don't always like meeting new people, but you can't always be afraid. And it's time to be a bit girl, again with this bit girl craziness. She then gave me a hug and a kiss and continued to beautify herself with more fashion fair cosmetics. I felt better. 
Her words gave me that little boost of encouragement that I needed. I felt so ready that I marched right up to my dad's Oldsmobile and said, let's go to school. As soon as we got closer to the school, whenever my mother had given me was beginning to dissipate. I could feel my stomach twisting and turning, and by the time we reached the school, the only thing I wanted to do was run home. I took my place in line with my dad, standing right next to me, and I didn't want to talk to anyone. A very tall woman with long blonde hair approached the line, and she said, Welcome to St. Timothy. My name is Mrs. Knudsen. Then she added, Has anyone seen my kindergarten class? She then pulled out a guitar and encouraged us to sing Old MacDonald before going into the building. I stayed silent. I wanted to go home and read Frog and Toad. I didn't want to be there. I wanted my dad to declare the whole situation ridiculous, take me by the hand, and drive us home. My eyeballs were getting hotter, and I could feel the tears beginning to spill over. Be strong. Don't cry. Once we got to the classroom, I looked up at my dad, and I just said, I can't do this. He said, well, maybe that means we're supposed to do it together. Would it help if I came to school, too? In between the tears, I was able to squeeze out a yes. For the first two days of kindergarten, my dad sat quietly in the back of the classroom, reading the Cleveland Plain Dealer, helping my teacher serve snacks, and doing his famous Elmo impressions for my class. I was always grateful for what he did for me that day. This was the first time I felt vulnerable, scared, and alone, and he was there for me. My father actually worked a late shift at a paint factory in Cleveland, and that morning he was most likely tired, overworked, and in desperate need of a nap. That day, he put aside his needs for mine. I think that being a father means helping your kids through those tough life experiences, giving them that confidence and support, and doing whatever it takes to make sure they don't have to go it alone. Byron Edgington. I believe we become parents to our parents. In May 2006, I left Hawaii to return to Ohio. I came back because my father was dying. In Hawaii, I flew helicopter tours, enjoying the good life, playing among rainbows. My belief was that as my father had cared for me, it was time to care for him in his final days. As I entered his house, Dad struggled to stand. Hello, son, he whispered. I embraced him, shocked at how frail he'd become. He'd been a picture of strength. He'd raised ten kids. He'd built homes with his bare hands. Now he could barely walk. Coming home, I saw to Dad's drug regimen, doctor's appointments, his chemo, hours at the hospital. Privileged that it was, the complexity of his treatment was enervating even for me. Listening to him reminisce about raising us, I recalled an incident when I was about 10. Dad had come home covered with the leavings of another day of heavy, dusty work. Lines of sweat stained his shirt and sawdust flecked his arms. My mother greeted him with news that the toilet was clogged again. Dad's knees buckled under the strain of her words as yet another task demanded his attention. His head shaking in resignation, he returned to the truck for his toolbox. In that instant, I knew what I didn't want. I didn't want the life my father had chosen. In my young mind, it seemed that Dad never got to do what he wanted. He'd sacrificed all his life so I could play among rainbows. Not once had I come home covered in sawdust. During a low point in his treatment and listening to his looming schedule, Dad closed his eyes and his head sagged. I asked him, perhaps for the first time in my life, what I could do just for him. Dad, what do you want? Make them stop, he said. 
He asked me to take the burden that was finally too heavy even for him. In that moment, I knew that my coming home to care for my dad was more than comfort. It was permission, permission to let go. My father died September 30th, 2006, at three in the afternoon, at peace, in his own bed, in his own home, in his own way. Soon after his death, I knew that he'd once again cared for me. The morning after Dad died, I awoke to a day of meeting with friends and family, making funeral arrangements and consoling each other. It was 7 a.m., and the cresting sun limbed the bedroom window after a morning shower. I threw on my robe and ran the curtain fully open. Light spilled into the room, and there it was, a double rainbow draped across the horizon, its rich tendrils of color like the drippings of an artist's palette. You can hear more This I Believe essays from Central Ohioans Jahari Mitchell, Marcia Dixon, and Jen M. Middleton at www.writerstalk.org. Writers Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University and The Ohio Channel, where you can watch some of our shows at www.ohiochannel.org or consult your local television listings. Also, you can find many of our recent authors, including some signed copies of books and interview DVDs in the Writers Talk section at The Ohio State University Bookstore. Join me this week at our regularly scheduled time of Wednesdays at 8 p.m. on WCBE, Central Ohio's NPR station, for Ohio State University faculty member Lee Martin, a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his 2006 novel, The Bright Forever. We'll discuss his most recent novel, Break the Skin. That's this Wednesday at 8 p.m. on WCBE. Until then, this is Doug Dangler from Ohio State University. Keep writing. Keep writing.